Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. We're outnumbered so often. We're out-resourced so often. But here's the thing. When you look at the biblical record, you find that this is always the way God has done it. God has always put himself in the position of being the underdog, so to speak. He's always put his people in the position of being the underdog. Why does he do that? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 23 through 40, in a message titled, Faith in the Midst of Affliction. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So here we are once again at the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith, as it has been called. And as I think I pointed out, you know, this is, this is one of those chapters that we could, we could literally spend months and months going through it because of all of the different people that are referenced and all of the different stories. Uh, but obviously that isn't, you know, that's not our intention. It, it wasn't really even the, the intention of the author. Uh, the author is just wanting to kind of rapidly bring before the minds of his readers the lives of, of those who preceded them, the lives of those who lived by faith in previous generations in order to spur them on to perseverance. Because remember, the, the context here is that the, the people who are the original recipients of the letter are people who had put their faith and trust in Christ, made a commitment to him, and were, were following him and serving him. But because of difficulty, because of what they perceived to be a delay in the fulfillment of the promises of God, because of persecution that, that had arisen, they were now considering drawing back from or turning away from their commitment to the Lord. And so the author, you know, many times over with uh, various exhortations and encouragements and even warnings, you know, he, he's telling them that you have need of perseverance so that after you have done the will of God, you can receive the promises. And so that, that's what he's doing here. He's encouraging them through reminding them of believers in previous generations who, who persevered through Things that, you know, they, they, they couldn't see the end from the beginning. In some cases, they persevered through times of great difficulty and affliction, but they, they held fast to their faith. And as a result, they were blessed. And he's saying to them, you know, this is what you want to do. You want to do just the same thing that we've seen people do in the past. He went all the way back to Abel and to Enoch and to Noah and then he focused on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now he comes to Moses. And, and like with Abraham, um, he takes a little more time with Moses or he maybe develops it a little bit more than he does. You know, most of the other ones are just sort of a mention. But with Abraham, he goes into detail. With Moses, he goes into detail. And, and you know, understandably, because Abraham and Moses were just 
you know, they were huge figures in the history of the people. So a little more detail with them. So picking up with Moses, he says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the of the king's command. So the first thing to note about Moses is not, even though it's by faith Moses, but really it's the faith of his parents that the author's referring to here. His parents, instead of complying with the edict of the king, which was to destroy their own children, his parents hid uh, him. The parents of Moses hid him and, and protected him. They didn't fear the wrath of the king. R- rather, they feared God. And so this was an example of their faith. They exercised faith by trusting in God. Now, Moses, when he became of age, then he had the opportunity to exercise faith himself. So when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So let's just look at what it says here for a moment about Moses specifically. So at a certain point, we know Moses was 40 years old, and at this stage in his life, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's part of the royal family. Some people speculate that he could have himself possibly been in line to become the Pharaoh. We don't know for sure, but that's a possibility because he's part of the family. Uh, But yet at this time and under these circumstances and with all of these privileges, rather than holding on to that, he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. So Moses makes this conscious decision to step away from the privileges that he enjoyed as being part of that household of Pharaoh and to identify himself not just with the common people, but he identifies himself with an afflicted people. He identifies himself with the Israelites who are, you remember, they're slaves in Egypt. And so how did Moses do that? How could he you know, step away from something that was so, you know, personally comfortable and potentially beneficial for him and and identify himself with this group of people who were afflicted. Well, we're told here that he did this because he looked to the reward. Moses, he looked beyond the present circumstances. He looked beyond even just his own lifespan, he looked basically to a day of a day of judgment. He looked to the fact that one day he would give an account of himself to God. And he knew that the most important thing was to do what was pleasing to God. So it's based upon that that he takes this step of faith, that he identifies himself with the people of Israel, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. And he esteems the reproach of Christ, it says, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. That is something that you could only do by faith. Because what Moses is doing is he's trading the visible for the invisible. He's trading the tangible for the intangible in a sense. 
You know, everything is right there in front of him. He can see all of this, all of the glory of Egypt and all of the, the possible, you know, material blessings that would come to him as a result of that. He, he can see all of that, but he can't see the spiritual benefits. All he sees when he looks over to the Israelites are people who are enslaved. But of course, he believed in the promises of God. He believed that, that what God said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, he believed that those things were true, even though he couldn't see before him any indicator that would say that, you know, that, that is going to be a reality at some time. It was by faith that he was able to do that. And so the same is true with us. We endure like Moses did by seeing the invisible. We progress by seeing the invisible. We, we advance in our journey with the Lord by not looking at what we can see, but by looking more at what God has declared and believing that and then acting upon that. And so each one of these cases here becomes an example for us and a person to emulate, a person to you know, seek to model ourselves after. And so he goes on, he mentions the, the Passover here and the sprinkling of blood, and he mentions the Red Sea, just kind of compacting together all of those events that happened through the life and the ministry of Moses. But then he moves from Moses and he moves on in the history, he comes to Joshua now, and he comes to the children of Israel entering into the promised land. They come out of the wilderness. They're there for 40 years. They come out of the wilderness led by Joshua. They come through the Jordan River. And the first thing they're confronted by is the walled city of Jericho. And that walled city is essentially the, a border that they are, at least as far as the Canaanites are concerned, they're not going to pass into the promised land. That wall is there to keep them out. Now, for them, it would have been quite easy to look at that as an insurmountable obstacle, to just say, okay, you know, we, we can't go into the promised land. Look at, look at this massive walled city. How are we going to scale this? How are we going to, in, in any way, you know, overcome this obstacle? Because remember, this wasn't like an army. They weren't uh, an organized military machine. They were just people who had lived in the wilderness for 40 years. So how are they going to inherit the promises? How are the walls of Jericho going to be removed? How is that obstacle going to be removed? Well, he tells us it was by faith that it happened. They, again, they didn't look at what was seen. They looked at the unseen. They believed in the, the promises of God. They could look back and they could reflect upon the, the history, how God had brought their ancestors out of Egypt, how he had brought them through the Red Sea, how he had sustained them in the wilderness, how he had dried up the Jordan River. And so now, you know, here's another obstacle before them. What do they do? Well, they have faith. They have trust that God can do and will do the impossible. And, you know, the, the life of a Christian is really, you know, th this is what it's like. In so many 
ways, we're constantly facing situations where the deck is stacked against us all the time. You know, I have often felt like this. I, and I, you know, sometimes in my, my prayer times, I would express this to the Lord. I, I felt like a fighter with both hands tied behind his back. So it's like, you know, Lord, you've called me to fight this battle, but, but I've got both hands tied behind my back. You know that, I mean, you can't fight that well with both hands tied behind your back. And yet oftentimes that's, the, that's a situation for us where we're outnumbered so often. We're out-resourced so often. You know, but here's the thing. When you look at the, the biblical record, you find that this is always the way God has done it. God has always put himself in the position of being the underdog, so to speak. He's always put his people in the position of being the underdog. Why does he do that? Well, he does it so that he can demonstrate his power. He does it so that we can see that he is faithful and that you know, he really is the one who is at work. And so whether it be the walls of Jericho or the deliverance of Rahab or, or any of these other things that he goes on to mention, we see a similar kind of thing in every single case. The odds are stacked against the people of God, but the people of God end up victorious, but they end up victorious because of their confidence in the Lord, because of their trust in the Lord. So for the people that are the original recipients of the letter, they're feeling right now that everything's kind of stacked against them. They're feeling like, well, wait a second, you know, where, where are the, where's the fulfillment of the promises of, of Jesus, the Messiah, sitting upon the throne of David? How come that hasn't happened yet? And, and why is it that we're being ostracized? Why is it that we're, we're being excluded from the community? Why is it that we're actually suffering persecution? And they're beginning to waver. They're beginning to, to falter. They're beginning to consider turning away. But the author comes back and reminds them, no, this is the way it always has been. It's always been like this for the people of God. It always looks like God's people are on the verge of extinction. It always looks like they're, they're right there, you know, just about to lose the game. But it's when that happens that God steps in. You know, somebody put it this way, and I think there's a lot of truth to it. God likes to build the drama. He, he likes to let things get pushed to the limit before he steps in. Now, you know, I think most of us would rather that he didn't do that. You know, just, we don't need to go that far with it. Let's just, you know, let's just nip it in the bud before, you know, it develops and gets to be too, too much of a problem. But, you know, when you, again, when you look back at these stories in scripture, you find that, no, God, you know, he tends to always build the drama. You think of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and you remember, you know, Pharaoh finally lets them go and they go out and they march forth in victory and they make their journey and then they, they come to this place of, of resting. They, they set up camp and they set up camp with two mountain ranges on either side of them and the sea at their back. And it just looks like a good place to camp. But what happens? Pharaoh hears that they're kind of in a trap. 
They've got to see it. They're back. Mountain ranges on their side. Pharaoh says, this is the perfect setup. We can come in and we can destroy them. And you wonder, okay, well, why did God lead them there? Because the Lord led them to that spot. Well, to build the trauma so that he could exercise his power and destroy the uh, opposing army of Pharaoh. And that's so often what he does with us as well. He lets the drama build. He lets everything develop. And he calls us to trust him through that. And so we see it over and over and over again in history. So he references Jericho. He references the harlot Rahab. And then in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So these same kinds of stories, like I said, they just happen over and over and over and over again. Gideon is, is such a classic story. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Gideon. I think it's Judges in the sixth chapter where you know God appears to Gideon He's like the least likely candidate to be a deliverer for the nation, and he knows it himself. And so when the angel says, you know, appears to him and says, oh, mighty man, you know, go in this year's strength and deliver Israel, he's like, okay, you got the wrong address. You're talking to the wrong person. It's certainly, I'm not a mighty man. And he says, he says, look, my, I belong to the smallest tribe, and my family, my father's family, were pretty insignificant people in our tribe. But the angel insists, no, go in this your strength and deliver Israel. And, you know, Gideon just, he has a hard time believing that this is really going to happen. So he goes through this test where he has a fleece, this thing of wool. And he says, Lord, if you're really calling me, you know, I'm going to put it out. And if, you know, if you really want me to go, then, you know, let it be wet one time, let it be dry another time. And, and sure enough, just as he asks, you know, God, God gives him the confirmation but then when, when everything is finally settled and Gideon realizes that, you know, yes, God is indeed calling me to do this, he gathers an army together and it seems like a, you know, a pretty substantial army, but in comparison to the Midianites, it's a very small army. But God looks at it and he says, your army is too big. He's got 32,000 men, and God says, you, you have way too many men. So he says, tell everybody that's afraid, everybody that's just recently married, everybody that just doesn't want to go to war, tell them it's okay, you can stay home. And so they said, fine, and you know, they ended up with an army of about 10,000. And you know what God said? Gideon, your army's still too big. And so God narrows it down, and he narrows it down to 300. 300? So it just makes no sense whatsoever. But God said this. He said, you know, because Gideon's saying, Lord, this doesn't make any sense. But God said this. He said, you know, I know Israel. I know if I gave you the victory with the 10,000 or the 20,000, you would think that it was you who did it. So I'm going to make it so ridiculous that nobody will have any question about how this battle was won. And that's what he did. He took the 300. Now, the author says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon. I just told you about Gideon. But, uh, <laughs> but those are the kinds of stories. But it's the same thing once again. Like I said, it's just over and over again, it's the same thing. God's people are outnumbered. God's people are out-resourced. God's people appear to be the underdog. But in the end, God wins. 
You know, I, I, I even look at some of the things happening today in the culture. I look at some of the things happening in the nation, many things happening around the world. And uh, there's a lot of battles going on in a lot of different areas. And I think there are times when the enemy gloats because he has apparently won a battle in certain areas. And, you know, people would even say today that, well, you know, in the United States, Christianity is on the decline and progressivism is on the rise and humanism and, and all of that, you know, is becoming the dominant view. And, you know, Christianity is being beat back. I mean, some people want to, you know, beat back the influence of Christianity. And so they're, in, in a sense, what they're saying is, you know, we're winning this battle. But, you know, the reality is the war has already been won. And God has won the war. Jesus won that war on the cross. And although we might appear to be losing certain battles here and there, the fact of the matter is, in the end, God will be victorious, even though still today, we as God's people, and you know, obviously there are other places where it would even seem more blatantly obvious that the, the people of God are, are losing the battle. Looking over into the Middle East where, you know, Christians have been driven out of their ancient homeland. Many of them have been brutally murdered and all, you know, somebody looks on it and says, wow, you know, look at what's happening here. And of course, those who are perpetrating those crimes, they would attribute their success to the, the, the greatness of their God over the Christian God even. But the fact of the matter is, the war's already been won. And this is nothing new. Everything has always kind of come along this same sort of way where God allows us to be seen as weak and inferior and lacking abilities and resources, but he comes in and brings a victory. So it's through faith that he goes on here now in verse 33. He says, they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life. Now in this first section here, he talks about the, the victories that resulted from the faith of the people. And everything that he just mentioned would, would manifest itself as a, as a victory. You know, eventually there would be a victory that would be seen. So the victory would be seen through the subdued kingdoms, through the obtaining of the promises, through the stopping of the mouths of lions. And, you know, if you know your Old Testament well enough, you know he's just kind of marching his way through the Old Testament. And even though he's not giving the specific details, he's talking about events that are recorded for us all the way through the Old Testament. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself 
that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens, and we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, or you're not sure about God's love for you. This book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hebrews. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.